Last Sunday, we talked about how the mission of Jesus to the disciples was to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, it had been prophesied in the Old Testament for years and years that this was going to take place. And this week, Jesus moves from the lost sheep of the house of Israel to telling the disciples that you are now going to be the sheep. You are going to be as sheep among wolves. And so it goes out to the broader portion of the world in seeking to share the gospel. And we have to understand something. A lot of times we think that if we share the gospel with people that they will always respond positively and in a good way. But the scripture tells us that in many cases the opposite will be true. That if you share the good news of Jesus Christ, if you share with people that they can't make it to God on their own, that they're not good enough to get to Him, and that someone had to die in, in their place and they have to submit to His authority, that is not good news to all. And so Jesus is explaining to us that the Christian life is not nearly as easy as we want to make it out to be. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16, he continues with that theme. Look with me if you would. It's also on the screen. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Sheep in the midst of wolves. This is the way Jesus is sending us out, so he's doing so in his strength and in his power. It's not hard to imagine what it is that wolves do to sheep. And so he tells us something that we have to know. We have to be wise as serpents, but we also have to be innocent as doves. That's kind of a strange comparison if you think about it. Serpents don't particularly have a good reputation in the Bible. And yet Jesus says you have to be wise, you have to be crafty, 
And you also have to be innocent. Doves have a reputation for being somewhat naive. They can kind of get into anything and don't even know that the danger is around. And so Jesus uses both of these metaphors. Be wise as serpents and yet be gentle, be harmless as doves. He says we ought to be wise in that nothing we do would compromise or cause a stumbling block to our message. Listen, the only thing offensive about us should be the gospel. The gospel is going to be offensive. People are going to reject the gospel. The scripture tells us this is true. But they shouldn't reject the gospel because of something offensive that we do. And so we ought not to be offensive in our talk. We ought not to be offensive in our walk. We ought not to be offensive in our smell. <laughs> Nothing that we do should compromise the gospel. And I'm afraid believers, in many ways, we do compromise the gospel by the way that we live outside of these walls. Sometimes the way we live inside of these walls. And why is it that most of the time the culture knows what we're against, but they don't know about what we're for? It's a problem. Because many times we're guilty of giving this you kids get off my lawn kind of attitude to the outside world when really what we ought to be doing is speaking the truth in love. Being willing to say things, being willing to understand that we're never going to get the world on our side as much as we try to compromise with them. Churches and ministries that are doing that today, understand this, that at the point of which you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, most of the world is going to have a problem with that belief. And so you're never going to win them all over. But what you do not want to do is give offense that gets in the way of the gospel. He says, be careful about that. I got to tell you, I know a lot of non-believers. I even know some atheists who are a lot kinder than some of the Christians I know. Some of you might, might observe the same thing. That's sad. We ought to be people who speak the truth, but we have to be willing to speak that truth in love. That's what he tells us to do. Be wise as serpents. Be innocent as doves. And then he says in verse 17, look, you've got to beware of men. And here's why you've got to beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in your synagogues, in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. But Paul used this as a strategy. He would allow himself to be dragged before the synagogues and allow himself to be beaten so that he might have an opportunity to share the gospel. And that's what made him so hard to deal with, with the Roman government. They said, we'll beat you. He would say, that's okay, I consider the sufferings of this world not to be worthy to compare with the glory that shall be revealed. They said, we'll put you in prison. He said, that's all right, I'll convert your guards. And he does that in Acts 16. They said, we'll kill you. He said, well, for me to live is Christ, dies gain. Guy like that's pretty annoying to deal with. But the gospel gets out as a result of it. He says, beware of these men. He says, you'll be brought before Jewish councils, state governments, before the rulers of the Roman world to declare the gospel. And here's what you need to do. Verse 19 tells us, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Watch this. For what you say will be given to you in that hour. And here's why in verse 20. It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of God speaking through you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead speaks through you. 
And so he says, don't worry about what you're going to speak. Don't worry about what you're going to say because God will give it to you when you need it. Often we say, God, why do you give me these trials, temptations? Why do you give me all of these things? And what we don't realize is that sometimes our most difficult opposition will also be times when God will work most powerfully through us. He says, don't be afraid. Because the spirit that brings things to life is also in your life. He goes on to say in verse 21 that brother will deliver brother over to death. This is really encouraging, by the way, to be a believer in Christ. You see these people saying, you know, if you follow Jesus, all your problems will go away. Read Matthew 10. Now you're being persecuted. You're going to be beat. Some people may even take your life. And now he says, look, your family's going to betray you. Hey, that's a message we want to give out. Follow Jesus, right? It's easy. No, it's not. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father, his child, children will rise against parents and have them put to death thinking they're doing the right thing. Some of you wonder whether or not your kids are going to take care of you when you get older. These kids are taking their parents out on their behalf. I mean, it's, it's a messed up world. And yet he tells us to remember something in the middle of all that. The one who endures to the end will be saved. I heard a story one time from a pastor overseas who was preaching the gospel in a country that was close to the gospel, hostile to it, and he was getting ready to do a baptism service one Sunday, and he noticed that one of the ladies who wanted to be baptized came in, sat in the back, and had a suitcase with her. Well, when you see a suitcase nowadays in kind of a foreign place, it makes you a little bit nervous. You don't know necessarily what's inside of it. pastor was no different. He got nervous. Lady came up at the end of the service to be baptized, and he just asked her as politely as he could, what's in the suitcase? She said, well, my former faith, if I follow Jesus and renounce the world, my family will disown me. So everything I own is in this suitcase, and I'm ready to follow Christ in baptism. That's exactly what he's saying to these disciples. Enduring to the end. And so the test of a true believer is whether or not they follow Christ in steadfastness. And so he tells us to pray for endurance, to pray for faithfulness. And then in verse 23, he gives more instructions about persecution. Again, this is an encouraging message today. You know, eat this up. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So they persecute you in Tell City, go to Candleton. Candleton doesn't work, go to Hallsville, you know. And if that doesn't work, go to Troy. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So he's talking about his coming again one day. And then he tells us why this is true. Listen to this, verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. They've called the master of the house Satan. How much more will they malign those of his household? Can I just ask you something? Those of you that say, well, I've been given a hard life in Christ and I just wish God would make things easier on me. Trust me, I understand where you're coming from. One of the easiest things to do in life is to get discouraged. It's especially easy for believers. It's what Satan uses. But can I just ask you something? Why do you expect to be treated better than they treated Jesus? 
Why do you have that expectation? You say, well, maybe if I could just get my life in order, get some better friends. Hey, Jesus had friends and he lived a perfect life and they put him on the cross. Do you really think that you're above that? He says, we've got to change our expectations here. A servant is not above his master. A disciple is not above his Lord. And realize that if they persecuted Jesus, hey, they're going to persecute you too because you claim him as the leader of your life. And he gives us some comfort out of that. I want to recommend a book to you. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It was written during the 1500s by John Fox. Fox's Book of Martyrs recounts the persecution of the early church all up to Fox's present-day England. It talks about how, how many were beaten and killed and slain for their faith. It reminds us that we live in a long line of people who have died so not only that we can worship freely, but so that we can have a copy of God's Word in our hands today. Sometimes the, the, the troubles that we think are significant really aren't all that significant in the eternal scheme of things. To recognize that suffering and persecution is not a badge of shame, it is a merit of honor in the kingdom of God. He goes on, he says, after all this, so after you're persecuted, after you're beaten, after your, your family disowns you, after your kids, rather than honoring you, take you out, after all of these things take place, after you're forced to flee from one town to another, he says, in the middle of all that, don't be afraid. Have no fear. I don't know about you, but if you're, if you're getting ready to go out to the D-Day invasion, if you're, if you're there at, at Normandy and you're waiting for the speech, and you talk about all the bad things are going to happen, and then they say, don't be afraid, go. <laughs> That's not really the most encouraging, riveting thing to to have take place before you're sent out in the battle. That that's almost feels like what Jesus is, is giving here, but then he explains why you shouldn't be afraid. Verse 26, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, hidden that will not be known. God is making all things new. Everything wrong in the world will one day be made right. What I tell you in the dark, verse 27, say in the light and what you hear whispered, Proclaim on the housetops. And then listen to this in verse 28. Listen here. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There are worse things than dying in this world. What is far worse than dying is living a life that's not pleasing to God. He says it's better for you to die in Christ than to gain the world while easing your soul. have to keep in mind the eternal perspective of things here that he gives to us. And so that he gives us some examples of why this is true. Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, two small birds sold for change, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? I like what one person said, without his consent, not even sparrows can die. Then he goes on, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I told the people in the earlier service, people come to me nowadays and they recommend two things. First of all, they recommend some type of hair growth because of this. <laughs> and then they recommend online dating sites. I mean, people I don't even know come up and tell me this stuff. So apparently I've got a... a unrecognized or unauthorized account on christianmingle.com. I haven't seen it. I guess you can check it out. 
They want to get me on farmers only, which really fits my personality and profile. <laughs> I, I'm thinking about doing like rugged outdoorsman or something, you know, ruggedoutdoorsman.com for the hiking stuff. I, I, somebody sent me, members of our church sent me last night a, a picture of a girl with a bunch of question marks after it. I'm assuming the, the message was rate her between one and 10 or say yes or no or something. I didn't know I was picking steaks here. I mean, it was just, it's just ridiculous. I, I, I tell our folks all the time, you know, I love you all and, and, and I know you want what's best for me, but sometimes you're just not helpful in that area in my life. <laughs> just tell people that. I think about this passage of scripture. Apparently if you get your hair back on, you can, I guess, get a better profile picture. Some of us try to dye our hair. Some of us try to grow our hair, but God knows what we really look like. He knows who we really are. And he loves us anyway, Scripture tells us. It says, verse 31, Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. If a sparrow can't fall to the ground, do you not think God sees you? He does. Fear not. So much of our politics today is driven by anger and fear. Politicians on both sides who prey on people's fears. So Donald Trump tells us, be afraid of the Muslims coming into the country. They'll build a wall. But our enemy isn't without, it's within. All the major world countries and empires have fallen from the inside long before they've fallen from the outside. And the scripture tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And they go beyond borders and beyond walls because they're after human hearts. And until people are changed by the gospel, they won't be changed. So Hillary Clinton tells us not to vote for Donald Trump because he's scary. If you've seen some of her positions, they're a little scary too. And then Bernie Sanders comes in in the middle of all this and says, hey, the government will provide everything for you because that's worked out so well for us. And people vote for him because they say at least he believes in something. By the way, I'm an equal opportunity offender here. I've gotten them all, so I hope you're all mad at me at the end of the service. <laughs> but when you spend more time in fear and in anxiety and in anger than you do in worshiping the Lord, then you ought to know exactly what the problem is around here. God isn't calling us to be people of fear. God calls us to be people of faith. I think about Abraham. I was reading in devotions this week on Abraham's journey of faith in Hebrews 11. He looked for a city which had foundation, whose builder and maker was God. He didn't even know where he was going or what he was doing, but God blessed him because he followed him. I think of Moses in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 24, by faith when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Look at the great pyramids in Egypt. If you ever get to see them in person, marvel at them. See what the treasure that used to be inside was, and remember that Moses, our forefather, gave up all of it because he considered Jesus to be greater than the treasures of this earth. 
He goes even beyond that. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He cared more about the invisible God than he did the visible man. He cared more about the eternal than the temporal. And then in verse 35, the writer goes on about all of our brothers and sisters who went on beforehand. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are our forebearers. And they considered it an honor to suffer for the name of Christ. Like what Spurgeon says, the fear of God is the death of every other fear. Like a mighty lion, it chases all other fears before it. And so two things are true today. Fear of man drives away fear of God, or fear of God drives away fear of man. If you fear man, you will not fear God. If you fear God, you will not fear man. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when you're more concerned with pleasing Him than with pleasing others, then you've found the secret to success in life, and there you've found the fullness of joy. He goes on with a couple of more things, and then I'm done. You and I don't live on reaction. We live on mission. We remember what the mission is, what God has called us to do. Then when the world starts changing on us, as it is rapidly nowadays, we don't get caught up in that. We see the finish line. And so he says in verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I said perhaps the two most embarrassing questions for the believer. Number one, how long has it been since you helped lead someone to faith in Christ? Number two, when's the last time you tried? What is it about our faith that makes us so fear embarrassment and rejection? We now realize that if the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was rejected, you and I will be too. You know, just a, a couple of weeks ago, I, I'm, a, I'm a drive-through equal opportunity evangelist. As a matter of fact, I keep these in my, my wallet. There's not much money in here ever. But I've always got like invite cards for Crossroads and HBC. So if you steal my wallet, you won't find cash, but you'll find a lot of invite cards. So hand those out if you do. Um, I hand these out in drive-thrus all the time. Sometimes one of the things that's helpful if you buy the meal with the person behind you. A lot of people do that for me, um, and just leave this card and invite them when you're going through McD's or something like that. That's a real testimony for them. Anyway, I usually hand it out to, to whoever's serving, and the person was particularly busy on this day, and I handed it out to them, invited them to church. And they looked at me like I had just invited them to, to take all the drugs in, in the world. I mean, I mean it, it was like I had asked them to go and bomb another country. I mean, that, that's the look they gave. And it, it was really kind of discouraging. It made me real hesitant to pass it out the next time. I don't know what it is about us that makes us think that everybody has to think well of us. 
Sometimes we want people to think well of us more than we want Jesus to think well of us. But Christianity has actually always succeeded more in rejection than in success. This is what Eugene Peterson says, talking about church history. 1,800 years or so of Hebrew history, capped by a full exposition in Jesus Christ, tell us that God's revelation of himself is rejected far more than it is accepted, is dismissed by far more people than embrace it, and has either been attacked or ignored by every major culture or civilization in which it is given its witness. Magnificent Egypt, fierce Assyria, beautiful Babylon, artistic Greece, political Rome, Enlightenment France, Nazi Germany, Renaissance Italy, Marxist Russia, Maoist China, pursuit of happiness America. The community of God's people has survived in all of these cultures and civilizations, but always as a minority, always marginal to the mainstream, never statistically significant. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to understand something that we've always been a minority. We can talk about America being a Christian nation, but we've never been a Christian nation. We've been a nation with some Christians in it, but if we were a Christian nation, every single person would be. Here's the statistics. Five out of six people in the United States claim to believe in God. Five out of six. You say, that's great. Everybody's going to heaven. One out of six believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Do you have to know Jesus in order to know God? If that's the case, and if the polls are true, five out of six then in America do not know God. It's the third largest unreached mission field in the world, right here. We used to send missionaries to other people. Now they're sending them to us. And thank God for it, because we need some help right now. But we have always thrived, not as a majority, but as a minority. And in the world in which we live today, when matters of marriage and where you can go to the bathroom and what your gender is comes about, the best thing we can do is not to respond in anger and in hostility, but as best we know how to speak God's truth and to speak it in love. Because an argument will never win somebody to Christ, very rarely, but love will. And so we have to love them enough to tell them the truth. This is what God has ordained for marriage, and God has created you in His image after His likeness, male and female, and so how God has created you is good. But we have to say that in a way that is loving. And we have to point them to repentance, and we have to point them to faith. And we have to say that if persecution comes our way, and it's coming, and God is going to soon separate the wheat from the chaff in the church of God in the United States. I truly believe that because now, rather than it being culturally acceptable to come to church, it's going to cost you something. But in the middle of all that, we proclaim the gospel. And we honor his name. And we don't go into it hostile, but we also don't go into it afraid. Because if God watches over the sparrows, does he not watch over us? And if His Spirit and His power is what gives us what we need to say, then we don't have to worry about making a good speech. We don't have to worry about always delivering a good sermon, singing a good song. We just have to be concerned with serving Jesus and sharing His message to the ends of the earth. Bow your heads with me.
Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at veryefields.com.